Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. <clears throat> the scriptures read, Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the lows, but their heart was hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of, at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. When they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about that whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. And as many as touched it were being cured. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks once again for your precious word, which is a light unto our path, a lamp unto our feet. And we pray once again that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a young lady on a beach when a little boy came up to her in his little swimming trunks carrying a towel, and he came up to her and said, do you believe in God? And she was surprised by the question. She said, why, yes, I believe in God. The little boy said, uh, do you go to church every Sunday? She looked at him and said, yes, I do. Then he asked, do you read your Bible and pray every day? She's at this point, she was very curious. Little boy, maybe a little evangelist, wonder what he's got up his sleeve. And she said, yes, I believe in God. I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible, and I pray every day. The little boy sighed with relief and said, would you hold my money while I go swimming? <laughs> you know, trusting people can be a very challenging thing. For all of you who get robocalls, for all of you who get a lot of spam mail, for all of you who get 
knocks on the door, wondering if you're going to buy this or buy that. It's hard sometimes to trust people. And those are people we can see. But for many people, it's even harder for those that we can't see. That being trusting God in relationship to the future. D.L. Moody writes, trust in yourself and you are doomed to disappointment. Trust in money and you may have it taken from you, but trust in God and you are never to be confounded in time or eternity. The disciples at this point in time needed to know what it was to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust fully in God, but not only to trust in Jesus, but to trust and understand who Jesus was and why he had came. The lesson they needed to learn was a lesson they didn't learn at the feeding of the 5,000. That was the last miracle prior to this miracle. It was the miracle that was last displayed in which Jesus provided for the needs of the people. And here in today's text, Jesus intends on teaching these disciples a very important lesson, a lesson that we too need to learn. So we look at the priority of Jesus, the problem of the storm, the presence and the worship of Jesus, and the power of the Lord Jesus at the very end. So we look into the text in Mark chapter 6, verse 45. We look first of all at the priority of Jesus. Immediately, it says in verse 45, which is one of Mark's favorite words because he likes to progress very fast through this text. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him onto the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Now, these disciples had just witnessed, as I mentioned, the feeding of the 5,000. That's what it's commonly known as. But it was more like the feeding of the 20 to 30,000 when you add all the women and the children, because it says there in the text that he fed 5,000 men. So you add in women, you add in children, you add in the culture, which loves big families. You've got 20 to 30,000 people. That's about half of T-Mobile Stadium filled up. And the feeding of the 5,000 was a very significant miracle. We know that because the feeding of the 5,000 was the only miracle besides the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. This is the pinnacle of Jesus' popularity. The most visible, the largest, magnanimous miracle that He had performed up to this point in time when tens of thousands of people would witness what he had done. And word about the Lord Jesus had spread throughout all of Israel, and we saw in the weeks past, it had reached the ears of King Herod. Not only did Jesus heal the sick, not only did Jesus cast out demons, not only have we seen Jesus calm the wind and the waves, but Jesus here provides food for tens of thousands of people all at once. And if you're sitting there in the crowd among tens of thousands of people and you're thinking to yourself, wonder what role Jesus has here. If anyone is going to overthrow Rome, if anyone is going to throw off this yoke that is on us by these Gentile Romans, it would be somebody like Jesus 
So you can imagine the fevered excitement that is spreading throughout the crowd like electricity. You can imagine the enthusiasm that the people had. They wanted a king. They wanted their own independent nation. They wanted that on a national level, and they saw Jesus as the one who is going to deliver what they wanted. They wanted to be free from under the Gentile yoke of Rome. Jesus knew that's what they wanted. Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6. This is what Jesus knew of what they wanted. John chapter 6, verse 15. This happens immediately afterwards. John chapter 6, verse 15. <coughs> the text says, So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself to be alone. That was their motive. He knew what everyone was thinking. Thousands of people. He knew that they wanted after free, after a free dinner, and all of the powerful displays of his miracles, they wanted to take him to make him king. They wanted him to overthrow Rome. What did Jesus do? I mean, if you were a part of his PR campaign, you might say, Jesus, take advantage of this situation. Jesus, the population is behind you. Think of what we could do. But Mark and Matthew both note, quote, he made his disciples get into the boat. He made them get into the boat. I mean, the whole implication there is that these disciples had the same idea. We know that throughout the text as we studied the gospel. These disciples had the same thoughts that the people had. In fact, they were thinking to themselves, boy, if Jesus sets up his kingdom, I want to sit on the right or I want to sit up on the left. I want particular political positions. I want to be in the new cabinet of King Jesus to be able to rule over the people in the new era that is to come. Jesus made them climb into the boat and then he sent the people away. Why? Because he knew that they had not learned what they needed to learn in the feeding of the 5,000. He knew that they had a lesson, and he was going to teach that lesson to them. So they climb into this boat at a late hour. They begin what would usually be a shorter trip, a short trip, which was indicated in, in the account. Jesus sent them off. The Lord didn't go with them, but the Lord chose to spend time alone in prayer. After a busy evening of ministry, his priority wasn't to sleep. His priority was to spend time with God alone in prayer. The prayers of Jesus were off for the people. The prayers for the people, perhaps the spiritual lives of the 20,000 people, plus thousand people who didn't understand why he had come. I mean, if Jesus had an agenda and the people didn't get his agenda, his heart, I'm sure, would have gone out to them. But to also pray for the 12, to pray for the 12 that they might also learn what he was about to teach them. And he was going to teach them a lesson as to why he had come. Perhaps it was to also thank God. We don't know the content of his prayer, but he spent time alone with God in prayer. And if Jesus feels that it is so very important to pray, so ought we. After serving the needs of tens of thousands of people, after days of ministry, 
I'm sure he was tired. I'm sure he was worn out. But he spent time alone with God in prayer because all of ministry is done for the glory of God and the will of God. At the beginning of each day when we were in Honduras, we always began it with a time of prayer, a team prayer, asking God for strength throughout the day. And at the end, it was wonderful to gather into Rob Kensinger, our supported missionary down there in his home, to spend time in prayer together, to hear the testimonies of students and to be encouraged, but to spend time together in prayer. Because without prayer, ministry can become very frustrating, it can be very unfulfilling, it can become unsatisfying, exasperating. When maybe your thoughts of what success might be might not match up to God's thoughts of what success is in the ministry. And without prayer and orienting your heart towards the will of God, the motives can often be wrong. When serving God is such a privilege, when serving God is such a privilege, we offer up to God prayer and thanksgiving and we come to God just as Jesus came to God. Well, the continuing account of what happened to these disciples continues in verse 47. When it says, when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, Jesus was, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking by the sea, as he intended to pass by them. And when he saw them walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost, and cried out, for they were all terrified. Here, there's a storm that suddenly comes upon them. And the reason there are these sudden storms on the Sea of Galilee is because the Sea of Galilee resides some 700 feet below sea level. But then you have the Jordan Rift, and the Jordan Rift surrounds the Sea of Galilee at a rise of roughly 2,000 feet. So when the air comes across the mountains, it comes swooping down into the valley area there, and there's a Sea of Galilee and about a drop of nearly 2,700 feet, and there you can have very fast, violent storms that churn the water into white caps and cause very dangerous conditions for these small fishing boats that come. It can come very suddenly. It still happens today. The violent storm that had begun, and they set out. They set out that night, sometime between 6 and 9 p.m., the te text tells us. That was the watch that was there. And they had been rowing and rowing, straining at the oars. And it was supposed to be a short trip, a short trip. But they had been rowing at the oars, and it tells us that it was the fourth watch, the fourth watch. And the, the, the way that they did the timing, the fourth watch would have been when Jesus saw them, which was about 3 to 6 a.m., so you can imagine, they've been out there. They've been out there fighting the wind and the waves for some six to nine hours. And these were not people who had gone out in some little canoe or rowboat. These were seasoned, experienced fishermen who very well knew what it was like to live by the sea, to live on the sea, to make their living by the sea. These were experienced fishermen, and here they could not overcome the wind and the waves, and it threatened their lives. Mark 6.48 tells us that Jesus saw them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. Jesus, in his divine vision, sees them on the sea. But it was not a surprise to Jesus. Jesus didn't look out after praying. And say, oh, they're, they're in a storm. Jesus didn't wasn't surprised by any of this. In fact, God brought about 
this storm by his miraculous power because it is God who controls the wind and the waves. Jesus had to listen to teach them. This was brought about by he himself. And he knew the storm was coming. The storm was brought about by, by God in order that they might learn something about who Jesus was. Now, that little phrase there at the very end of verse 48, it says, and he intended to pass by them. Now, it's, I know that sounds a little bit strange. It's almost as if the, 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 the storyline is like, oh, Jesus is going to walk across the water to Capernaum or something like that, and hi, sees them nearby. That, that's not how the sense of the term is. He didn't intend to pass by them and then suddenly divert because he, he sees them in trouble. The better translation would be, he intended to come alongside of them. It was intentional. Not only the storm was intentional, but he intended to come alongside of him. That's the translation that was there. But when they saw him, when they saw him, they were terrified. Why? The Bible says that they were terrified supposing, verse 49, that it was a ghost, and they cried out. They all saw him, and they were terrified. Now, that word ghost comes from the word with which we get the word phantom. It's the word phantasma. It is from the word which we get phantom, and it was popular in the first century. It was popular in the first century superstition to believe that the spirits of the night brought disaster. And so you can imagine, maybe all of the fables they've been told when they were younger or something came up, that they believed this unconquerable storm, the storm came, and it was perhaps caused by ghosts in the night. And so here they see Jesus, and they are terrified of who Jesus was because they didn't recognize him at first. But Jesus, in his voice, and you can imagine how peaceful it must have sounded, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. What a lesson for us. No matter what kind of danger we might be in, it is God who is the protector. It is God who is the comforter. Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is a wonderful psalm. If you turn there, explain a little bit about this psalm. Psalm 3, when we are in trouble, the psalmist is King David. He writes there in Psalm chapter 3, and this is a situation in which the psalmist writes, and he's writing in the context of Absalom. Absalom is his son, and his son wants to kill him. His own son wants to kill him, and he pens this song, psalm. And he says in verse 1, Psalm 3, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. That's the context of what other people are telling David. Verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. 
You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. Didn't matter that tens of thousands of people, followers, the military, who were following Absalom, his own son, headed out for him. He was a marked man, and yet he could sleep in peace. Why? Because verse 3, you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Now that pictures. In a military context, when you're a soldier, you have your shield on your left hand, you have your sword on your right hand. And when you are fighting alongside of your comrades, your other soldiers, they too have their shield in their left hand and their sword in their right hand. And so when you're standing next to someone else who's fighting with you, alongside of you, their shield will shield the right side, which is undefended by a shield. But the picture that is pictured here that David writes, but you, O Lord, are a shield all around me. It's not just to the left, not just to the right, but God is a shield and a protector of us, all around us. And so verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. Now, if tens of thousands of people are against King David and he can sleep through the night, if tens of thousands of people want David dead, how much more if we take peace in Christ and we take peace in the comfort of God, are we able to sleep at night if we trust in God? No matter what your situation is, no matter what your problems are, no matter what context you're in, if we trust in God, God will provide for us, He'll protect us. And we may go through difficult times. We may go through very difficult times. People may be out for our very lives, and yet, because of God, we can sleep through the night. Because oftentimes it is anxiety, it is worry, it is fear that overcomes our heart and keeps us awake, but not David. Would we be able to say, as Psalm 23, verse 4 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For what? For you are with me. It doesn't say I fear no evil because I can pay for it myself. It doesn't say I fear no evil because I found a way to solve my own problem. Or I fear no evil because all of my friends care about me. No, I fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. In Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What more or what can mere man do to me? You know, many times these students, as they go off with me to Honduras, to what is also known as the murder capital of the world because it has the highest per capita murder rate in the world, I wonder how many parents worry, stay up late, lose sleep. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise. Peace comes when we realize that God is a shield all around us. Peace comes when we realize we can trust in God. 
Jesus said to these disciples whose lives were at stake, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. As Isaiah 26 verse 3 tells us, Thou will keep him in perfect peace. Thou will keep him in perfect peace. He whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Do you have peace in your heart? No matter what your situation is, God calls us to trust in Him. Whether our lives are on the line or whether or not it's because of some situation that may come, calamity might be on its way. John Piper, in his book, Future Grace, he rented, reprinted a letter by a man named Carl Lundquist. Carl Lundquist was the former president of Bethel College and Seminary. A number of decades ago, the doctors told him that he had a rare form of cancer. That rare form of cancer was called mycosis fungoides, and it evaded the skin over his entire body. Three years later, he died. He wrote this letter, though, the day after he heard the news about his cancer. The day after he heard the news about his cancer, he wrote, quote, that day in the hospital room, I picked up my Bible when the doctor had left. I turned to the joy verses of Philippians, thinking one might stand out. But what leaped from the pages was Paul's testimony in chapter 1. Quote, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain, unquote. He continues on. As I discovered that this verse I had lived by in good health also was a verse I could live by in ill health. To live, Christ. To die, gain. But by life or by death, it's all right either way. So I simply trust that God, in his own way, will carry out for me his will, which I know alone is good and acceptable and perfect by life or by death. Hallelujah, unquote. And a professor would often say in class, he would say, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And if dying is not gain, then living is really not. About Christ. No matter how wild the ride may be in your own life or difficulties may face you, knowing God and trusting in God and trusting in someone who can take care of everything, including our future, including our soul, will grant to us peace, just as Jesus said to these individuals. Do not be concerned. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then we see the presence and the worship of Jesus. He got into the boat, verse 51. He got into the boat, the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. You know, the part that is omitted in the account of Mark, the account of Mark, Mark was one who wrote probably very much. Mark was a fellow learner by the apostle Peter. He was a very friend of his. Well, in... This account, I'm sure all of you recall. In Matthew chapter 14, 
verse 28. It is the same account, and it includes where Peter said to the Lord, Lord, if it is you, come to me on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, it says. But in Matthew 14, verse 30, it says of Peter, but seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, the Lord stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? They got into the boat and the wind stopped. Peter, in his impulsiveness, and a lot of times we may be hard on Peter because he is impulsive. Many times he'll say something and many times he will be the one who will make a rash decision. One of the things that is characteristic about Peter that we admire is that he was the one who was always wanting to be there. He wanted to be near the Lord Jesus despite his denial, even though he denied Christ three times. They forget that he did follow Jesus after his arrest. He wanted to be close to Jesus, whereas the other disciples were nowhere to be found. In the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter said, Lord, if it's good for us to be here, if you wish, I will make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter was around. He wanted to be around. He wanted to be close to Jesus. And he went off to Jesus when he saw Jesus. But then he took his eyes off of Jesus, and his eyes focused on the storm that was there. His eyes focused on the difficulties, and he lost sight of Christ. So, too, it is for us many times. Our focus on all of, all of our problems or the challenges or the difficulties in life cause us to have fear, to lack trust, be overcome with worry, to be overcome with our concern and that grips our hearts because we've taken our eyes off the one that we ought to choose to see, and that is God. He became frightened, it tells us, and he calls out to God, Lord, save me. Well, the Lord did rebuked him, for he was of little faith. I hope our trust will always be in Christ. Our trust will always be in God. Our eyes will always be fixed upon the one who is in control of all things. But then Jesus climbs into the boat. What happens is that the wind stops. The wind stops. And in, not only does the wind stop, this is not the only miracle. I mean, this is a number of miracles within this whole passage. Not just the fact that Jesus stops the winds and the waves. Not the fact that Jesus brought about the storm in the first place. But John 6, 21, it tells us that after he got into the boat, verse 21 of chapter 6 of John, they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Right there. Disciples were astonished. They were flabbergasted. They'd been rowing for nine hours, and how far could they get? It was only a few miles. Calm storms, a few miles, and boom, they would have been there. But they were blown off, probably to the south, miles and miles, blown around, could get nowhere, nowhere. Jesus climbs into the boat. They appear on the other side. They were astonished. Matthew 14, 33 is very insightful. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 14, 33, this was their reaction. Those who were in the boat, Matthew 14, 33, a little passage that tells us that they learned what they had not previously learned. Matthew 14, 33. 
And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. You are certainly God's son. This time around, unlike the time of the feeding of the 5,000 in which their hearts were hardened, they recognized, they worshipped him as God's son. That is the response of one who is a genuine believer. A true Christian sees the power and the provision of God and responds in worship. A true Christian doesn't look at somebody who sees his power to see his provision and then see God as some sort of vending machine by which we can get everything that we want. Because the disciples had previously, in their mind's eye, had the same perspective as the crowd. Jesus is coming. Look at all of these tens of thousands of people. He's going to send up his kingdom, and we're going to be the vice regents of everything that is going to happen. And hey, the time has come for us to take our place in the new kingdom. Jesus was not about that. Jesus was about letting them know and opening their eyes to the fact that he is the son of the living God, and he was the object of their worship. Not power, not provision. It was that he was the son of God. And he displays his power. He displays his power to the masses as we come to verse 51. As all of these people from all around the area come and it underscores his message. It underscores the very fact that he is the son of God. Not only can he command the wind and the waves, not only can he protect them, not only can he do all of these things, but he can heal the sick. He can continue to cast out demons and to show them that his message is one which you are to trust in him, to look to Christ, not simply for all that he provides, but to look to Christ in worship and praise, bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because a lot of people, maybe some of us, see Jesus as one who gives us good things, and he does. One who we can come to which he does, and opens his arms. He calls us to come to him, but that's about it. We like these people, the feeding of the 5,000. We like to have our healing of our body. We like to have our stomachs filled. We like to even have our political circumstances change, and some people are very much into that. We are very much like these people, the 5,000, the masses. But how often is it we see the blessings of Jesus and it causes our hearts to worship even more, to give God honor and glory because of what he has done. There was a couple, names are Claude and Amanda Tackett. They were a young couple who lived in the Midwest in Louisville, Kentucky. They were members of this Southeastern Christian church he had recently completed law school. He was doing well as his first job as a lawyer. In January of the year that that account had taken, Amanda had given birth to their first child, Luke, little Luke. The future of their family looked so picture-perfect bright. Three days, though, after giving birth to Luke while she was still in the hospital, she got out of bed to put the baby in his bassinet. Claude was asleep there, 
but he was awakened by the fact that she began crying out his name. She was grasping for the side of the bed, and she doubled over in pain. Claude hit the nurse's call button. The next minute, that whole room, from a serene, peaceful evening, turned into a scene right out of ER. The nurses took Amanda's blood pressure, and she didn't have any. They made Claude leave the room, and within a few minutes, the doctors came, just to inform Claude that Amanda had died of a pulmonary embolism. In other words, she had died from a massive blood clot that was lodged in the artery between her heart and her lungs. He was left there with a three-day-old son, no wife. All of a sudden, just like that. In March of that same year, he sat down with a reporter of the Louisville newspaper. Some of the things that he told the reporter were this: "Quote." I wish I could say I was strong, that I never questioned God, that I always trusted and believed. But it's so hard. Every night for nine months, we prayed that God would keep Luke and Amanda safe. Every night for nine months. Frankly, there were several days when I looked despair in the eye. But there's no way you can live like that. He then looked at the little child who was sleeping in his lap. And、he said, "I only have one dream for Luke. It's the primary goal of my life. My goal is that my son would not spend a single moment outside of the will of God. That when he realizes he needs a savior, I want Luke to see his mother again someday." Unquote. The goal of our lives is that people would come to know the Savior, not just see what the Savior provides. Not just to be able to say God can heal you, or God can give you good things, or God will make your life happy, or He'll give you joy. But we want people to know the Savior. We want people to know Jesus for who He really is. That we might be able to call them our brothers and our sisters in God, in Christ. That they might be able to say, just as a lesson these sailors needed to learn when they were on the boat. You are the Son of God, and bow in worship to our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your goodness and your grace. We pray, Father, even as we've listened to many of the testimonies about the work that you have done, the work you will do. We pray, Father, that above all else, that people would come to know who Your Son is—not just for what He can provide, but that He, O、oh、God, is Your Son who died, that they might have salvation and true joy, true peace. For that only comes in You. May we learn to trust in You in all ways and all things. We pray, Father, for those who may be struggling. In whatever area, unknown future, unknown areas of study, unknown for the days ahead, maybe it's with health, maybe it is with moving. Whatever it is, O、oh、God, may they find their trust in You, that they might find genuine peace. In Jesus' name, Amen.